Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Land and place are often a big contributor on how a people's history unfolds. This is especially true for water sources for land. And for residents and visitors of Georgetown, Kentucky, the site of Royal Springs Park may be a very familiar site. Well, that park's history is the source of water and life for the earliest settlers of that area. Today's guest is Gary O'Dell, the author of the new book, Bluegrass Paradise, Royal Spring, and the Birth of Georgetown, Kentucky. And he's here to tell us the rich history of that site. Thank you so much for joining us, Gary O'Dell. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what kind of inspired you to start researching the Royal Springs. Okay, well, that's really an interesting question. It goes all the way back to my adolescence. Uh, My parents brought me to Lexington to live when I was about 13 years old, and we moved into a house in Cardinal Valley. Yeah. And just over the... uh, Hill, there was a, an actual valley, it's a, a tributary of Wolf Run Creek, and there was a very large spring that discharges and forms the beginning of that creek. Well, I discovered this spring very qu- quickly as a 13-year-old going down into this tree-covered valley. It was like a, a wilderness almost, and uh, followed the water until I came to this spring, which came out of a cave opening a very low cave opening, so I wasn't really tempted to crawl inside, but I was fascinated with the idea of this water just pouring out of the ground from apparently nowhere. And within a few days, uh, I followed the railroad tracks that paralleled the valley and discovered a, uh, a point where the water was sinking underground, and that also seemed very strange. And I followed that water and came to another spring that uh, emerged and followed it well, not the, the water, but went a little further and discovered the Big Blue Hole. Now, this was McConnell Springs, which is now a, a city park. And ever since that time, I've been fascinated by the limestone springs of Kentucky. Uh, we live in a state that has a geology that is mostly limestone, and it's just full of caves in which groundwater flows and discharges from springs. Shortly after um, my experience with those springs in the valley, I joined a group of cave explorers in Lexington, It's a chapter of the National Speleological Society called the Bluegrass Grotto, and uh, learned how to cave safely and went caving all over Kentucky and several adjacent states, and that pretty well set my focus for the rest of my life. I still do some occasional cave exploration, although... That's a good group. They've, I think they've done a program for the library. Uh, yeah. Yes. It was, it's like just rudimentary, like one-on-one introductory to cave exploration. So it was, sure. it was lovely. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm still in touch with them, still a member. Even, I don't, like I said, I don't go caving as often as I used to. I'm a little older and a little slower, but I still try to get underground every so often. I had taken some geology courses from Dr. John Thrillkill at the University of Kentucky, And he mentored a number of graduate students who who, um, followed a program of his to discover where all the groundwater in the inner bluegrass region was going. This involved uh, putting dye into sinkholes and monitoring springs to see where it came out and learn what the pattern of groundwater flow was in the area. Well, Thrillkill knew that I was interested in caves, and one of his students was studying the Royal Spring Basin. And so he thought the two of us ought to get together. And so I accompanied Larry Spangler, who was the graduate student doing this work, 
out into the field and helped him do his project. And one day we went to see the actual spring itself in Georgetown. And that was an amazing spring. It was so huge and so much water coming out and right in the middle of a city. Yeah. So that sparked my interest in Royal Spring. Now, as I said, I, I, I started out as a cave explorer, and my first interest was simply in exploring the underground worlds. But as I grew older and got more education, I became interested in the regional history and how caves and springs had played a role in that. You know, there's a lot of different things. Caves, for example, were used as natural refrigerators back in the days before electricity. Springs, of course, were uh, water supplies, and the, the water was used to make uh, whiskey in Kentucky because it's so pure and clean. Water from flowing springs powered mills. You know, it was backed up in mill dams. And so I began to collect information about the caves and springs of Fayette County with the idea that one day I would publish a book on it. I haven't got, quite got that done yet. I'm still collecting and still yeah. writing. But a spinoff of that was the Royal Spring. Even though the spring itself is located in uh, Scott County in Georgetown, most of its watershed comes from northern Fayette County. So I decided to collect uh, information about Royal Spring. And then my mode of collecting information is simply to keep stuffing things into file folders until <laughs> I have a pretty good picture of what's going on. <laughs> kind of like how I do my research for podcasts. Yeah, sure. very similar. <laughs> and as time went on, I kept stuffing and it got bigger and bigger until it could no longer be framed as a chapter in a book about Lexington Springs and Caves, but uh, was worthy of a book in itself. And so that's what led to it. I started work actually um, doing the writing about Royal Spring probably 10 or 12 years ago. Oh, wow. Well, it's interesting that you talk about your draw to the water source as a child. There's something about water sources that kind of draws children to, because I think about my childhood growing up in the Lansdowne Merrick area, and we were always drawn to the creeks that were behind our houses. And we actually lived briefly in the Cardinal Valley area. But there is a draw to water. Water is the source of life. It's the it's what kind of, you know, people's history kind of emerges out of where the site of, of water is. So talk to us a little bit about the history of Royal Spring and how, you know, the story of Georgetown began. I absolutely will. But before I do that, I just wanted to point out it's interesting that there's a Lansdowne connection because uh, that's that's where I lived also. Oh, cool. We, once we moved from Cardinal Valley. <laughs> We've got Valley, a lot of things in common then. <laughs> we moved into uh, Medlock Sutton Place area. Wow, that's where um, we lived off of Medlock. Yes. Yeah. I was on Flint Ridge Circle. Flint Ridge Drive. Flint Ridge Drive. We yeah. were neighbors probably at one Could point, be. maybe. Yeah, in the mid-90s, um, we we we, uh, we moved into, into that area. Yeah, we wouldn't have actually been neighbors because I got married and moved away in the 70s. Wow. So, <laughs> before your time. Before my time, yes. All we right. immigrated here um, in 86 and moved to the Lansdowne area in, okay. in, in the uh, 90s. So, well, it's, it's, a, a lovely, it's a lovely neighborhood. It's a nice is. subdivision. And you were talking about the interest in water, and I yeah. I remember when I was probably 13, 14 years old and we moved there, I would often build dams on the little creeks, you know, and back yes. up the water. Yes. Yeah. It was just kind of fun to do. Yeah. Anyway, um, speaking of Royal Springs history, that the community itself, its roots go back to the very earliest days of the pioneer settlement of Kentucky. And springs were one of the primary features of the landscape that pioneers 
looked for when they were investigating land that they wanted to claim in the region. There was a system set up to where pioneers could come in, they could uh, survey parcels of land, and then they could file applications with the Virginia government in order to uh, obtain a warrant to that land. They could pay some modest fees. The land was, was never free, but it was not terribly expensive either. So the pioneers that came into this country, they had two things in mind. They wanted fertile land for farmland, and they wanted a good water supply. And springs have historically, for thousands of years, been perceived as the purest form of water. That's not necessarily true, but that's the perception. And so the bluegrass region of Kentucky was a destination for the colonists of the uh, the eastern colonies because all of the hunters, trappers, explorers, traders that came into Kentucky then found their way to the bluegrass region. They came back east with tales of how beautiful this land was, how fertile the soils were, how abundant the game was, and described it literally as being a, a paradise on earth, which is why I have a the title of the book ended up being Bluegrass Paradise. It described what the uh, would-be settlers expected to find when they got here. And it was not quite as paradisical as they were led to believe, but it was still a very good land. So they came into the region looking for land, springs, good soil. This began in the early 1770s. And at that time, the first communities in Kentucky were laid out, that being uh, Harrodstown or Fort Herod and Boonesboro. And McClellan was right in there among the earliest, McClellan Station. But I'm getting a little ahead of my story. We need to talk about the discovery of Royal Spring. Now, in April of 1774, William Preston, who was the official surveyor for the uh, colony of Virginia for their county of Fincastle, and that's the term that was applied to the Kentucky region at that time. It was a very large and mostly unknown county of Virginia. And his protege was John Floyd. And he sent John Floyd out to survey lands in Fincastle County, or Kentucky, in order to provide military grants to veterans of the French and Indian War, which had taken place a decade earlier. And he was authorized to survey tracts of a thousand or more acres for uh, veterans of the war. The higher in rank you were, the more land you were allocated. And he was surveying for a number of famous people, including Patrick Henry. He had warrants from the government to survey for Patrick Henry and a number of others. So John Floyd set out down the Ohio River in canoes with a group of other men who came with him as members of a surveying team. They went as far as the Falls of the Ohio, where Louisville is now, and came ashore and surveyed a number of tracts of land there in the bo- of good bottom land for people. At that time, the party divided, and about most of the men in the party, and there was probably 12 or 15, were going on to Herodstown or Fort Herod to uh, help with the construction there. But Floyd took three of his men and struck out eastward across cross country heading for the bluegrass you know because he'd heard the reports that had been coming back about how wonderful that this inner bluegrass region was and so they crossed the Kentucky River in July and followed a buffalo path that paralleled North Elkhorn Creek 
and began laying out surveying tracks or land tracks in that area. Now, we know quite a bit about Floyd's journey because one of his uh, surveying assistants named Thomas Hansen kept a journal. And as they came into the Elkhorn region, he uh, described, he said, this land is like paradise, it's all so beautiful. Now, they laid out the uh, first batch of tracks using a baseline, in other words, a starting point, which today is exactly the Ironworks Pike in northern Fayette County. And so he surveyed off of that baseline that he laid out 1,000-acre, 500-acre tracks. And after they had done this for a, uh, a few days, they decided to take a break. And Floyd and uh, William Nash, one of his assistants, struck off in search of a spring because Floyd wanted some land of his own. You know, certainly he was surveying for his employer, Preston, for all these other people, but it would be uh, a very smart thing for him to do to try and grab some of this land for himself. So they went looking for a spring, and my best bet is that they were following the trail along Elkhorn and came to where the branch or creek from Royal Spring discharges into Elkhorn and decided to follow that water. And one clue may have been that the water from the spring was probably a lot colder than the water in Elkhorn Creek, and that would have been a, a signal that it was coming from a, a fairly significant spring. So they followed it about a half mile and came to what Hansen described as the largest spring they had ever seen. He said it was as big as a river coming out of the ground. And Floyd was so struck by this location that he had his men survey a thousand acres around this spring for himself. And they camped there for several more days until finally they um, left the Elkhorn region to go down to Herod's Fort to rendezvous with their friends, but discovered that the fort had been attacked and was abandoned. And so they hustled on back into Virginia just in time for the outbreak of Dunmore's War. Let's talk about how Georgetown population started to grow and, and, and actually becoming like a viable town and, and, and city. Well, the next point in this story is the settlement of the area of Royal Spring. And in, let's see, it would have been in late 1775. So this was a year after Floyd discovered the spring. Some folks from central, south central Pennsylvania, John McClellan and members of his family, William McConnell, and that's a name that's well known to people in Lexington, of course, and yeah. whom McConnell Springs is named after. Yeah. And another name that should be well known to folks of Lexington, which is Robert Patterson, one of the founders of this community here. Anyway, there was a group of about, oh, 12 or 15 of them that set out for the Kentucky country. Most of them had been to the Bluegrass region before and probably had stumbled across the Royal Spring at some point during their explorations. So they came down in the Ohio River in canoes. Uh, half of the party was in the canoes, and the other half was um, going along the south bank of the river driving livestock. These were the first livestock that were brought into Kentucky, cattle and horses as well. So the very first horses of Kentucky were those brought by the McClellan party. Now, at a, about where Vanceburg is today, the party split. And those with the cattle set off down the Buffalo Trails heading for the vicinity of Frankfurt, or where Frankfurt is today. And the rest of the party continued in their canoes to the mouth of the Kentucky River and came up river to rendezvous with them there at a place that was called Leestown. It wasn't actually Leestown at that time, but it soon became known as a settlement called Leestown. So they rendezvoused probably sometime in 
late November, early December, maybe even a little later than that, and set off across country following again the Buffalo Trails for about, I guess it would be maybe 20 miles or so from the area of Frankfurt to where Georgetown is now, and came to the Royal Spring. And this is where they planted their settlement. They built a log house on top of the uh, hill right over the spring. Now, Yeah, yeah, because there's, there's a big difference, of yes. course. Yeah. There were in Kentucky what were known as three public forts. These were uh, Boonesboro and Fort Herod and also St. Asaph's or Logan's Fort, as it became known. Oh, okay. And these were all in the southern part of the bluegrass. These public forts essentially were uh, housed people in transition. Settlers would come into the area. They would acclimatize at one of these public forts, kind of get tips on how to survive in the wilderness, where to go to find the best land. You know, they talked to the leaders and the scouts and so on to find out what it was like out there in the wilderness. And so there was a pretty high turnover of folks coming in and out of the forts. And this is why they were public forts. They were basically administrative centers for the region. Now, stations, however, were settlements that were made by individuals or families. They were privately owned rather than being a public settlement. And McClellan's was a a station, a private settlement, but it was one of the very largest of those that was made in Kentucky. A little later in the the following year, let me back up on this. So they built a, a fairly large house. It probably... And this is just my guess. It was probably 25 feet or so square, built out of logs. And it housed all of those people that came down. You know, there was you know several families living in this one house, but they um, would soon start building cabins of their own. And keeping in mind that they probably would want to fortify it sooner rather than later, they laid out the cabins in straight lines so that they could be enclosed by a log stockade sometime in the future. Now, the public forts... When they were first laid out in Boonesboro, in, uh, I believe Boonesboro and uh, Fort Herod was first in 1774, and Boonesboro maybe uh, early in 1775. I don't remember a specific date on that one, but had the idea, I suppose, since things were relatively peaceful at that time, that they didn't really need to rush on building a stockade. So they just laid out some cabins, and, and pretty crude cabins these were and didn't bother at first to put stockades around them until the Indian danger was brought home to them. And this particularly became true in uh, 1775. It had been a relatively peaceful year, and I suppose people were sort of lulled into complacency. But that um, complacency was shattered in April of 1776 when a group of Indians attacked Leestown and killed two people there. Yeah. So the settlers of the region engaged in a communal fortification of the various settlements and stations. You know, parties from one station would help those at another station to try and get up the stockading as quickly as possible, you know, providing enough labor to do it quickly. And McClellan's was then enclosed by a rather large stockade. It had a number of cabins. There's been uh, estimates. Nancy O'Malley, for example, our archaeologist with the University of Kentucky, estimated there may have been as many as 30 families living at McClellan in uh, 1776. Now, based on some what available information there is, I've been able to estimate just how big that station was and about what it looked like. The uh, Lyman Draper, 
was an amateur historian in the 1830s. Is that the Draper Papers? Yes. Yeah, I think we archived in microfilm in, in the Kentucky room. Yeah. yeah, one of Kentucky's mistakes was is that when the Draper Papers were available uh, after his death, Kentucky didn't want them. Uh. And so Wisconsin ended up with them. And Wisconsin has made all the copies microfilm for the rest of the libraries in the country. Right. Lyman Draper was an uh, amateur historian and he had grown up listening to tales told by his father and grandfather. His grandfather had fought in the Revolution. His father had fought in the War of 1812. And when he compared the stories that were in books, he found that there were a lot of discrepancies about the events that happened. And so he came to the conclusion that the only way to really know what had actually happened was to speak to those who actually participated in these events. And now, this was in the uh, 1830s, and he was aware at this time that a lot of the original settlers of the West were busy dying off because they were getting old. And so he wanted to record as many of these stories as he could. So he wrote hundreds of people. He interviewed hundreds of people, and he traveled extensively through the region. And in 1838, he came to the town of Georgetown that was built in the location of McClellan Station. He talked to some people that were had been alive at the time that the fort was there. And um, there were still probably some traces of the fortifications on the hill above the spring. The lumber had long since been recycled. But he was able to put together a picture of what it looked like, and he drew a diagram in his notebook. Now, he showed the spring, which he said was um, three poles wide, and a pole was a unit of measurement that equaled 16 and a half feet. So it was roughly wow. 50 feet wide. Wow. Incredible. And he drew the fort on the hill above the spring, and the fort was about twice as wide as the spring, so roughly 100 feet. But he also put a note on there that said, I see that I drew the fort too small in proportion to the spring. So the fort had to be over 100 feet in length. And so... If you look at the type of cabins that they used at that time, they were generally about 18 feet square. That's the size they had at Boonesboro and Harrods. And so if you figure out how many cabins are going to fit into an enclosure, it's going to have to be, you know, you've got two 18-foot wide cabins, so that's 36 feet. And then you got to have space in between for people to, you know, carry out daily activities. So I figured the width of the force had to be at least 80 feet. So I ended up settling on a, an approximate figure, just my best estimate, that McClellan Station was about 120 by 80 feet. Is that journal still around? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, it's pub it was published in a book some 50 or 60 years ago. We know from uh, Robert Patterson, he wrote a little bit about his experience in helping do, do the fortifications at McClellan's. And he reported that he assisted in building a blockhouse. Now, he didn't say there were several blockhouses. He just said a blockhouse. Now, at Boonesboro, there were, I think, three or four of these blockhouses, and Bryan Station had blockhouses, and Harrods had blockhouses. At McClellan's, evidently, they only built one. But they had, uh, on other corners, they had, like, apparently watchtowers. You know, it's not something that would be safe, you know, to uh, defend from because it was exposed, but, you know, you kind of keep an eye on the territory and see anybody who was coming. So they built it of uh, logs that were set in a trench in the ground, forming a perimeter around the houses. The cabins themselves, their outside walls became part of this fortification, part of the stockade. So they basically filled in between the cabins with the logs or pickets, as they were known. 
and uh, had a gate in either side, trail going down to the spring. So it was pretty well defended. In December of 1776, those fortifications came under, under fire, came to, were put to the test. A party of Wyandotte Indians crossed the Ohio River into northern Kentucky, and they were led by a expatriate Mohawk known as Plugganamnoti, and he was known on the frontier as Chief Pluggy. They shortened his name. And so they came down the Buffalo Trail from the Ohio River and uh, attacked McClellan Station. Now, they caught the inhabitants by surprise. John McClellan was outside the station when the attack was launched, and he was shot immediately in the first volley. Now, he wasn't killed outright. He was drug inside the fort to safety. But the Indians laid siege to the fort for the remainder of the day, both sides exchanging shots at each other until finally near just before dark, a lucky shot from the fort managed to strike and kill Chief Pluggy. And the Indians continued to take pot shots for a little while after that. They slaughtered all the livestock, so that was the end of the first horses in Kentucky. And eventually, um, that evening, retreated back to the Ohio River. Now, in the exchange, there had been four of the men who had been wounded. Two of them survived their wounds, but two died, and one of these was John McClellan. He lingered on after the attack, which took place on Christmas Day, December 25th, until January 6th when he died, and he was buried outside the fort. And the remainder of the inhabitants were so alarmed by the attack that they uh, abandoned the fort and retreated to Herod's. And at some point, the uh, Native Americans of the region came across the empty fort and, and burned it to the ground. Yeah, so it's no longer there. Yes. Shortly after the uh, settlement of McClellan Station, John Floyd, who had gone back to Virginia and sent back again to uh, Kentucky, learned that where people were squatting on his property up at Royal Springs. So the property that he chose for himself? Yes, and he now had legal title to it you know, from the Virginia government. And he was quite irate about this. So he wrote a letter to Preston in which he said that he was going up there to drive these people off. But when he got there, he found that uh, things were a little different than what he expected. There was actually a f families up there. There were was one woman and her at least three children, possibly as many as five children. This was uh, John McClellan's wife, Sarah, and their children. And women and children on the frontier at this very early point in time were extremely rare. And so he took pity on this family and agreed to sell the property to McClellan to be paid sometime in the future when things settled down. Now, this sort of complicated things in the future. What did John Floyd do after he sold his, his property and just— He was one of the um, best known of Kentucky pioneers. I mean, his is a name that was known to the people of the region along with you know, Daniel Boone and Simon Kenton and Benjamin Logan and others. Now, he ended up being killed by Indians in an ambush in the vicinity of uh, what is present-day Louisville. Okay. Uh, I believe it was near, uh, off a of Beargrass Creek somewhere. There was an ambush. He was on horseback, struck by a shot, reeled in the saddle, but managed to escape. But his wound proved fatal, and he died in a, a cabin that they had fled to. Now, apparently, he made his will as he lay dying, and the... Uh, Subsequent transactions involving Royal Spring are a little bit complicated because 
life and death events happened pretty quickly on the frontier at that time. And so the uh, spring property ended up being sold three times, but never but always before the deed could actually be finalized, either the seller or the buyer had been killed. So we have John Floyd was killed by Indians. We had John McClellan killed by Indians before he could pay for the tract. Floyd, meanwhile, since uh, his death occurred after, he sold the property to Stephen Trigg, who was one of the so land... So let's backtrack. So Floyd was killed after McClellan? Yes, several okay. years after. Okay. Several years after. John Floyd was killed several years after uh, the attack on McClellan Station in which John Floyd, in which John McClellan had died. So we ended up with a situation in which the transaction or the sale to McClellan could not be finalized because McClellan had been killed. So Floyd sold it instead to Stephen Trigg, who's one of the uh, land commissioners sent to Kentucky to straighten out the tangle of uh, land claims and who would like the area so much they decided to settle, I think, in the vicinity of Herod's. And meanwhile, Trigg was killed at the ambush at Blue Licks, but Trigg had agreed to sell it to a fellow named John Cobbs. Wow, what a web. <laughs> yeah. So you had all these people that were you know, involved in transactions concerning Royal Spring, but they all got killed off before anything could be recorded. Now, it ended up that the uh, Floyd, in his will had directed his heirs to convey the property to Trigg. And so Trigg's heirs ended up with it for the time being. But then Cobbs, who had an agreement from Trigg, I believe they had done a land swap, if I remember, uh, he sued the Trigg heirs for the property and finally got it, but it took a long time to work its way through the courts. Cobbs did not actually get title to Royal Spring until 1787. And so this was like, uh, well, more than a decade after McClellan's death and several years after Floyd's. So we have then that Cobbs was in ownership of the property, but he was now living in Georgia. At this time, a lot more people were coming into the bluegrass in the uh, late 1780s and 1790s. You had a, a veritable flood of immigrants replacing the former trickle. And among the people that came to Kentucky in the uh, mid-1780s, was an entire church from Virginia. This was led by uh, Lewis Craig and the members of the Craig family, and they had decided to leave Virginia because the official church of Virginia was the Anglican Church. And as Baptists, they were being persecuted by the, uh, by the government, literally. So they wanted to come to Kentucky to, in order to have freedom to practice their religion. So they literally packed up the entire church and uh, came down the trails to Cumberland Gap and came into Kentucky that way. And it was known as the Traveling Church. So they came up into the bluegrass and um, established a couple of churches. Now, meanwhile, Lewis Craig's brother, Elijah Craig, remained in Virginia for a couple of more years. But he finally immigrated to Kentucky. And he was, uh, like his brother, he was well known as a man of the gospel, a very uh, accomplished preacher and had quite a following. So he set up a church in uh, Scott County, and he somehow contacted John Cobbs and arranged to purchase the Royal Spring property from him, the entire 1,000 acres. 
Now, it took a while. Craig arrived in Kentucky. Elijah Craig arrived in Kentucky about 1785 from the accounts that we have. John Cobbs did not actually have his lawsuit against the Trig heirs settled until 1789. Elijah Craig came to Kentucky in 1785. And in 1787, he was advertising the Royal Spring property. On the Royal Spring property, he wished to set up a town and uh, was selling town lots, which would be allocated according to a lottery as to who got which lot. Now, this is interesting because Cobbs did not obtain legal title to the property in 1789, but evidently he had sold the property to Craig in 1787 on a lick and a promise, I suppose. Yeah, so before he actually even owned the land. Wow, okay. (laughs) But, you know, Craig did eventually gain title to it. And he he named it initially Lebanon Town. That was his first choice for uh, the settlement at the Royal Spring. But in 1790, he petitioned the uh, Virginia government, and Kentucky was still part of Virginia at that time, to uh, recognize his town officially. And Virginia granted a charter to what was called Georgetown, named in honor of George Washington, and that was in 1790. Now, Craig was quite an entrepreneur. In fact, he was often criticized by uh, other Baptists for being just a little bit too much involved in worldly affairs. Everybody acknowledged that he was a true child of God, but they thought he was being distracted by his efforts to uh, set up various business operations in his new community. But Craig had a vision for uh, Georgetown. He wanted to establish a a Baptist-oriented community in which people could find employment and get a good education. And one of the very first things he did was to actually set up a Christian academy in the town. That was before he ever opened up any kind of business operation. Education was his, his priority then. But afterward, he had set up a number of mills on the uh, Royal Spring branch using the flow of water dammed up from the spring. He set up a, uh, a fulling mill, which is a mill which is used to uh, make woolen cloth more compact and waterproof. He set up a rope walk, which used uh, hemp, yes, that hemp, to make uh, rope. A big industry in Kentucky. Yes, it was a very big industry in in the state for many, many years, till about the 1940s, I think, because the the plant has these uh, fibers which make very good rope. And he also set up a um, paper mill. Now, historian Richard Collins claimed that all of these were firsts. In other words, he was the first person to do all of these different types of business in, in Kentucky, but that's not at all true because the Kentucky Gazette records other operations of the type that were in business before Elijah Craig established either his fulling mill or his rope walk. He might be able to be given credit for the paper mill. There was an advertisement in the Kentucky Gazette that so-and-so was going to set up a paper mill somewhere else in Kentucky, but nothing else was ever heard of that, so it may not have come into existence. Now, it may be that Craig was trying to answer a demand by um, John Bradford, who was the editor of the Kentucky Gazette. And Bradford advertised that he wanted to find somebody who knew how to make good paper because it was getting harder and harder to get good newsprint from the East in order to publish the Kentucky Gazette on. And it was about at this same time 
that Craig set up the paper mill. And before long, Bradford was reporting that he was using paper from Elijah Craig's mill in order to print the Kentucky Gazette. Now, another first that is popularly and to this day associated by many people with Elijah Craig was the invention of bourbon whiskey. Mm -hmm. That is, I don't know if you would call that an urban legend because this is uh, 200 years before we had an urban (laughs) in Kentucky anywhere, but uh, there is no doubt that Craig made whiskey. I mean, in Kentucky at that date, everybody was making whiskey. The 1810 census of manufacturers lists 2,000 distillers in Kentucky making whiskey because that was the easiest way to convert low-value corn into high-value product, you know, which could be exported out of the state. So it was a prime example of value added. And we also know that Craig made whiskey because he got fined for not paying the tax on it. (laughs) But was this bourbon whiskey? (laughs) Well, Scott County was never in Bourbon County. Georgetown and Scott County were never part of Bourbon County. They were part of Fayette County, which is divided into Woodford, and from Woodford, Scott County was created. Bourbon County was a huge county that occupied most of northeastern Kentucky, and it contained for a time the principal shipping port of Maysville. And so Kentuckians were making all of this whiskey and shipping it out of state, down the Ohio River to the Mississippi, to New Orleans, and back to eastern ports, and it was usually a lot easier to ship downriver than it was to try to go back upriver, even though it was closer. And so this was whiskey that was made in Bourbon, Kentucky, and was known as Bourbon Whiskey. It was not describing a particular flavor, color, or process. It was just describing a location. Now, the official definition of bourbon was not codified until much later, and that was that bourbon is a type of whiskey that has to be made up of at least 50% corn, Usually, you know, rye and some other grains were added to that and had to be aged in a new charred oak barrel for a minimum of two years. Now, aging in a charred oak barrel imports the flavor to bourbon because the the effect of that scorching on the wood releases a number of chemicals that give bourbon its flavor. I mean, flavors like vanilla and caramel and so on that you can find in bourbon. Now, there are stories that have no known origin that not, cannot be tracked down to a definite source that are probably, you know, what they call apocryphal, not, you know, fairy tales, I suppose, that says that Elijah discovered this process either by A, having stored some barrels in a barn which burned and somehow it conveniently scorched the inside of the barrels without burning them up. And when he stored whiskey in those barrels, ah, there it was flavored. It was different kind of whiskey. Yeah. Or B, that he had some barrels that he had been storing fish in and wanted to use them for storing whiskey, but didn't want it to taste like fish. So he charred out the inside of the barrels to get rid of the fish flavor. And who knows, that may be how bourbon was actually discovered, but there's no reason to believe that Elijah Craig was actually the person that did this. Bourbon County itself claims Jacob Spears as being the inventor of bourbon, and so we have a friendly rivalry between bourbon and Scott County as to who exactly invented bourbon. But to this day, the legend lives on. I mean, the uh, Heaven Hill Distillery markets Elijah Craig brand bourbon and describes it uh, in their advertising as following the same process that Elijah Craig invented. Wow. So, you know, taking a little bit of liberties with the historical truth there, but it certainly makes it for a popular brand of of bourbon. That's true. Sometimes history is as you make of it. Take it as you want, really. (laughs) So today at the park, there is a a log cabin. Yes. And is that all that's left? 
Oh, that log cabin was never part of the, of that settlement. Tell us the story behind that log cabin. Whip. Let me get to the story of Royal Spring Park and how that cabin came to be in the park. The location of Royal Spring was rapidly transformed from being an idyllic pastoral scene, you know, of a gushing spring pouring out of the rocky ledges of the hillside to more or less an industrial wasteland. Wow. And, you know, even in the early days, you know, we have all these mills that were being set up along the uh, the water course, uh, not just on Royal Spring Branch, but on Elkhorn as well, all part of the the early light industry of Georgetown. And when the water supply became an issue for the community, because Royal Spring can never supply uh, a larger population, you know, maybe 10,000 people, but as the community grow, Royal Spring could not reliably supply the population throughout the summer, for example. Georgetown is the only community in Kentucky that still relies primarily upon the same spring that was part of the pioneer settlement, the rationale for the settlement of that location. But getting that supply to people was a bit difficult. You you had to come to the spring and dip it out in buckets and carry it home or fill barrels on a wagon and and take those home. And there were water haulers in in town, part of the African-American community who made a fairly good living by dispensing water, you know, taking it in wagons around the town. Ellie Elgin was one such African-American who did this. He had crooked leg mule known as John, and when John died, and this was in the uh, early, I think, 1879 or 1880, thereabouts, when the mule John died, the Georgetown paper lamented that John is gone and now our water supply is in serious jeopardy. Now, it was about at this time that uh, there began to become agitation for a community water supply to be provided through pipes. Uh, Lexington did this in the 1880s with the building of a reservoir, and Georgetown followed suit soon afterward. Now, the point I was getting at about the industrial wasteland is that these utilities were set up next to Royal Spring. From pioneer times, there had been an area known as the Commons, alongside the branch parallel to the stream, that was basically a community space. But this was filled up pretty quickly by utilities. First the water company, and then the ice company, all of them pulling water out of the spring. And then the the water company diverged, or diversified, into other utilities, you know, and so we had gas and electricity and the street railway, and all of them were basically headquartered along Royal Spring Branch. And so we had all these uh, coal-fired steam engines puffing away, you know, and griming up the area, and people were painting advertisements on the ledges over Royal Spring. And, you know, it basically it was pretty ugly, and people were really um, saddened by the, the situation of Royal Spring, but, of course, nobody really knew what to do about it. So there began a movement for creation of the park that lasted for more than a century because it was just simply sporadic. There would be a little bit of effort made. You know, maybe they would go in and tidy some things up, plant a couple of trees and some flowers, and then people would forget about it, and it would just kind of go back to being neglected and weed-grown and abandoned. And then uh, the next generation would come along and say, well, isn't it terrible, the, the condition of Royal Spring? We need to do something of this. The first real accomplishment in turning the Royal Spring area into a city park was made by the Women's League of Georgetown and spearheaded by Ann Payne Kaufman, who is uh, something of an activist. She was a progressive in uh, the 1920s. And the Women's League was doing all sorts of things for Georgetown. They were uh, trying to make sure that there were receptacles for trash, you know, in the city streets and that the, uh, the 
children into schools were being provided with books and so on. You know, this was just some of the activities of the Women's League. But they um, thought that it would be good to turn this into a park. And so they had a little money for this, and they uh, hired a man to come in with his mule team and a, a scraper to kind of level things out a little bit. Again, plant some trees and make things look pretty for a while. And so just like the, the previous efforts, it did stay you know nice for a while, despite the fact that there was all this clutter upstream from the park area of all these utility buildings. But in time, people kind of forgot about Royal Spring and it went back to being neglected again. So we're going to fast forward now about a half a century to 1976, and that was our bicentennial year. And Georgetown's bicentennial is the same year, basically, as the American bicentennial. McClellan Station was planted either in late December or early January of 1776. Ann Bolton Bevins is a well-known historian in Scott County, and she submitted an application for Royal Spring to be on the National Register. And there was a considerable support for turning the Royal Spring area into a city park at this time to become the, the city's bicentennial project. And it was one of the first bicentennial projects approved by the, uh, the federal government, whoever was in charge of these projects, I suppose. The city brought in a number of landscape architects and others to advise on, you know, what kind of vision do we have for Royal Spring and, and a park here? And they advised a lot of things that the city could not afford, but would be wonderful if they could. But uh, one of the things they suggested that maybe there could be development north of the spring, you know, on the other side of U.S. 460, you know, there's it was the old city jail, and maybe you could build replicas of Elijah Craig's mills, you know, the paper mill and the fulling mill and so on, and kind of make this a big tourist draw. And so that, that got a little bit done. And it was about at this time, the application to um, include Royal Spring in the National Register was approved. That was submitted in 1976. The uh, movement to spruce the whole area up and turn it into a uh, an amenity for the city and a city park that people could be proud of got quite a bit of traction at this time. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to build a replica of the fort on the hill over the spring and also to bring in other things that would sort of recreate the pioneer atmosphere of McClellan Station. Now, in 1978, a local businessman offered to donate a log cabin that was on his property a few hundred yards away from the spring. Now, Initially, this cabin was thought to have been built in 1794, I believe. When they got started disassembling it, they discovered that this cabin was actually not an original pioneer cabin. Disassembled it and looked into the history a little more, and it turned out that it had actually been built in 1874 by Milton Leach, an African-American living in the community. But there was still a tie to the pioneer era because he had salvaged logs from old pioneer cabins all over the community and used those to build his own home, this Milton Leach cabin. So they disassembled the cabin, and um, you know, a log cabin was a log cabin and would still look good in the park. And they brought it over to the park and set it up and um, you know, outfitted it with all sorts of um, knickknacks that would harken the pioneer era. And it's kind of used, been used as a teaching area. From that point, the, uh, the park has receive more or less support from the city government, depending upon the economy and who's in office at the time. During the uh, the recession, which, uh, let's see, that was uh, 2008 or 2009, 
basically park maintenance was being neglected because the city budget had to cover the essentials for the city and could not spare money for uh, the site. The economy got a little bit better, and uh, one of the factors that also really helped was the election of Tom Prather to the, the mayor's office. He was initially appointed earlier to uh, fill a, t- a vacated term and then served a second term and then came back in the uh, late 2000s to serve two more terms. Tom Prather had quite a uh, historic connection to the uh, Royal Spring, actually. His uh, grandfather, Asa Prather, had served t- four terms as the mayor of Georgetown back in the uh, 1930s and 40s and 50s, you know, over a long period of time, and actually had arranged for the city to purchase the water company from a private company to become a a city-owned utility. And Prather's father had been chairman of the Water and Sewer Board for many years. So he had quite a connection to the spring itself. And he was willing to invest as much in the park to improve it as the um, well, as the city budget would allow. I mean, he was a realistic man, but he was uh, very much in favor of the park. And he got a lot done. One of the things that he accomplished was to get the water company, which had, um, from its original location next to the spring, had relocated in more modern times to downstream on the bank, but it still had some warehousing facilities that were right next to the spring. So he got the water company to get rid of the clutter around the spring and opened up that space. You know, made a lot more room for the park. And he basically told the citizens that, uh, you know, whatever proposals they brought to him for the park, if the city could afford it, he would see if he could get it done. And they got a lot done. They built a uh, a big picnic shelter during the time of the uh, Kentucky Equestrian Games that were held here. That proved to be rather a disappointment. They thought that there would be a lot more tourism coming to Georgetown as a result of the games. But it turned out the tourists went to the games and didn't really want to go anywhere else. So the hype didn't quite live up to its uh, initial promise. But the the result was, in anticipation of the tourism that would be drawn by the equestrian games, Georgetown did a lot more to fix up the park. And it is it has remained in fairly good shape ever since. It draws a lot of locals and people like from Lexington going up to do other things. And yes. It's definitely a, a nice place to go and explore. But it has a lot more potential to uh, enhance the tourism of Georgetown, there's one thing that it's lacking. Now, Boonesboro is a popular site. They got a fort. Herod is a popular tourist site. It's got a fort. And they've got their own websites, and they draw tourists in from all over the country to see the pioneer fortifications and the craft workers and so on that's going on. Now, ever since the the days of Ann Payne Kaufman and the, the Women's League, they wanted to put a replica of McClellan Station Fort up on top of the hill above the spring. But there's one problem. Uh, Kentucky Utility Substation is located there, and there's wires crisscrossing all over it, and it would be a rather expensive proposition to relocate that station. The edge of the station is only 40 feet away from the spring. There simply is not room to put a fort replica up there. Now, in earlier days, in the 40s and 50s, you know, but that was part of the plan. We're going to put a, a, a fort up there. Nobody seems to realize there wasn't room for one. And uh, that came back up again in the 70s as part of the master plan for Royal Spring Park is we're going to put a fort up there. But, you know, it was, the people quit talking about it once it really hit home. That like, we can't do that. Not, not now. Now, I've talked to Prather about this before, and he says that 
you know, KU is a good community citizen and that in time they may be open to the possibility. This is something that in the, in the long term may actually happen. And I think that would greatly enhance Georgetown tourism. Now, one of the things that I have suggested is that what if Kentucky was to obtain this property and turn it into a state park? It's a small park, but if that Kentucky utility station could be removed, that would leave room not only for the replica, but enough for parking as well. The actual park is only a little over an acre, so we're not talking about a big park like uh, the one down at Fort Herod, but one that would certainly provide a lot of draw because of its historic associations. And another big factor is that it's also the easiest one of these fort replicas to get to. Georgetown is better connected to the interstate system than either Boonesboro or Fort Herod. So the Kentucky Park System has fell on the hard times, you know, as a result of the uh, economic downturn. But in the future, this might be a possibility that uh, could be examined and perhaps brought to reality. Yeah. Now, Boonesboro is part of the state, the yes. Kentucky Park System. And I believe Fort Herod is also. Yeah, they are part of the park system. And so they have a uh, full-time manager. They have the backing of the state for whatever funding is needed to keep it in repair. So it wouldn't be a problem with maintenance like Georgetown sometimes has. They have a good programming infrastructure as well with the school system and lots of field trips there. And so, yeah, that would be a, an interesting thing for Royal Springs. Yes, I talked to the manager at Fort Herod, and I don't off the top of my head recall the number of visitors, but it was in the tens of thousands that come to see. Not surprised. Not just the Fort Herod area, but who actually go into the Fort Replica and pay the, the fee to go into the fort and look around. I mean, more people come to the park itself, but a large percentage of those you know, pay the fee to get into the fort. And so that could generate a lot of revenue. Yeah, and a very good educational aspect as well. Absolutely. I mean, all the stories that you've just, it's such a rich history. Um, and we managed to do it in a, you know, less than an hour podcast, but it's such, book is, it goes into very much detail of the, the rich history of the, of the spring. So. Well, tourism is one of the biggest assets to the Kentucky economy. I mean, we, it's a billion-dollar industry. And heritage tourism is one of the biggest draws. I mean, many people go to historic sites. Think about all the people that go to Civil War battlefields. Here we have in Kentucky, we've got Revolutionary War sites, and that would draw a considerable number of tourists, I think. Something that we're think about for the future. Definitely, definitely something to think about. Doing Bluegrass Paradise, what... Do you have in the works coming up, or what kind of project are you working on? Well, I just finished another book manuscript, which I submitted to the University Press of Kentucky, and they are extremely interested in it. It's currently out on review. Uh, there's no official word yet that they're going to publish it, but the editor is quite excited about it. And so uh, where it's not a done deal, I'm pretty confident that it will appear probably in 2025. Now, this is actually a spinoff of the Royal Spring book. There is a chapter in Royal Spring about the park during the time of the Civil War. It was uh, owned during most of the 19th century by a fellow named Keen Richards, who was one of the most, uh, well, during the time, he was one of the more famous thoroughbred horse breeders in, in uh, America, certainly in Kentucky. And he had a, a fabulously interesting career. He was He had the theory that if you were to breed Arabian horses to thoroughbreds, and thoroughbreds were originally bred up from what they call Oriental horses, Barbs, Turkmen, possibly Arabians, back in England during the 17th and 18th centuries. But the style of racing 
was heat races, which were endurance races, and horses would sometimes drop dead on the track or go lame for life as a result of these long-distance races. And Arabians were so well-known for their endurance that uh, he thought if you bred Arabians to thoroughbred, you'd get a horse that could better stand up to the rigors of racing in his time. So he made uh, two trips to the Middle East to purchase pure-blooded Arabian horses from the desert Bedouins. He was the very first Westerner ever to do this, to actually go into the deserts and buy horses directly from the Arabs instead of from coastal dealers where they may or may not have real pedigrees. And uh, he took with him the famous horse portrait painter, Edward Troy. He was his uh, best friend and companion, and he was also Troy's primary patron. So he deserves a lot of credit for having that adventurous spirit. Now, there's a lot more to the story, but that might be the subject of another interview. Do we know exactly where he went in the Sahara? Yes, he... uh, Troy kept a journal, and uh, Richards himself wrote quite a bit about what he wanted to do and where he went. And so many parts of his journey, we can place him here in various places, you know, at various times. One of the things he wanted to do was, well, he made, essentially, he turned it into not only a horse-buying expedition, but a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and visited all yeah, of the holy that sites. that sounds so fascinating. My family's from North Africa, so I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> You'll have to come back on the podcast. Yes. He, he went through North Africa. He, uh-huh. he crossed the Gibraltar and bought horses and rode across uh, next to the Atlas Mountains across in, and went into Algeria and looked at the breeding stables there to learn how they did the bred horses. And then finally uh, went, took a steamer to Malta and from Malta to uh, Egypt and then got on a Kanja and came up the Nile and then helped pioneer a route across the Sinai, visited Petra. Wow. And, you know, from there he went up into the Levant, up into, uh, you know, Syria. Jerusalem, Syria, and so on. Yeah, my family's from Libya. Okay. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, Libya is one of the areas he visited. He was interested in the Libyan horses. That was their survival over there, so. But, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. We can't wait. Look okay. forward to that book. We'll end it here. Thank you so much, Gary O'Dell, for coming to talk to us about your book, and that's Bluegrass Paradise. It is available for checkout at the library and at your local bookstores. Again, thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at l-e-x-p-u-b-l-i-b dot org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane. <laughs>